You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Lydia Pine, who is a voluminous writer, I should say, is also at the Institute for Historical Studies at UT Austin, also the author, most recently, of a book called Endlings, Fables for the Anthropocene. Also, Genuine Fakes, How Phony Things Teach Us About Real Stuff. Another recent book called Postcards, The Rise and Fall of the World's First Social Network. And then going back in the archives a little bit, we've got Seven Skeletons and a co-authored book, The Last Lost World, Ice Ages, Human Origins, and the Invention of the Pleistocene. Now, Lee, I have to ask you, it seems like your early work, there was maybe a little more focus on paleoanthropology and stuff like that, but you seem to have widened your scope. And I think a lot of what you do, it's loosely called history, but it's really a combination of sciences and, and the humanities. It's really, I think it's a reflection on how we make sense of ourselves and our past. You, you mentioned actually in the Endlings book, you start off with a description of humanity as the storytelling species. And so a lot of what you're writing about, not only are you telling stories, but you're also telling the story of stories and how we make sense of our past. If you were to try and autobiographically <laughs> connect things and create a kind of a red thread of your, your research. And I think maybe being outside of academia allows you to wander wherever the spirit moves you, so to speak. But how would you connect this inquisitorial journey that you've followed, this path of writing? How do you make sense of it all? First of all, I love the turn of phrase inquisitorial journey. I think I'm going to write that down and just put this on business cards. That's fantastic. Thank you for that. But if I were to sort of try and explain sort of what, what kinds of books am I interested in? What sorts of questions am I interested in? What sorts of projects do I take on? I think that I think that it comes back to college and graduate school and finding it very difficult to pick one subject. And as an undergraduate and as a graduate student, I bounced around between different disciplines and was always really interested in what I saw as connections between history and archaeology and archaeology and history of science and deep time history and material culture. So I had the opportunity to train in a lot of different academic disciplines. And as a writer, I've been able to take those backgrounds and those experiences. And what I would like to think is to put them together and to say, what sorts of big stories can we tell about people? Can we tell about people and their stuff, their material culture, and how people think about their stuff and their material culture? So I think that if I were to try and, as you say, draw that red string, that line between all of the projects, I think that it really would come back to history and storytelling and objects and how people use objects to tell stories. What you're also doing is describing how we make sense of our past. In the book on endlings, you talk about how species, the notion of a species is in many ways an artificial construct. And I think the era, whether you're talking about the Pleistocene or the Anthropocene, these are also artificial divisions because history is, is a continuous story. So why do you think it is that we need these stories? So in, in the book Endlings, you talk about how 150 species a day are going extinct. And I don't think that that data is likely to move a lot of people 
to action. But as soon as you start telling the story of Martha and then Celia and even Turgy the, the snail, then all of a sudden people don't want to do something. Why is it that we need these stories before we're willing to, first of all, to make sense of things and also to motivate us to action? Yeah, that's a really good question because I think it touches on a lot of different things that really piqued my interest with taking on the project Endlings. And so to your first point, what do we think about the Pleistocene or species or these sorts of broad categories? I think that giving ourselves broad categories is a way of trying to make sense of and order the world around us. Any category that we create is going to be capricious. It's going to have a give and take to it, and it's going to have a series of trade-offs. What I found so interesting about thinking about these species, though, specifically how we think about categories of species for endlings, is realizing how hard it is in some instances to try and find the last individual of a species. Mm -hmm. So an endling is the last known individual of a species before the species is declared extinct. And it was, it seemed like such a straightforward kind of definition, like, nope, it's the last one. Once this one individual dies, then the species is declared extinct. But the more I tried to hone in on and to think about the last of this, this species, the more I realized that it's very difficult to count the last of something when the category that is the last of is so slippery and tricky and historically contingent to begin with. And to your second point about why do we care about Lonesome George and why do we care about Cilia the Ibex and even the poor little Polynesian tree snail, Turgi, it's hard to take in 150 species a day or whatever the, the latest numbers are going extinct. I think that that's one of the really powerful things about endlings is it gives us a clear story. It gives us a character. It gives us something to identify with and to latch onto and to follow in a way that I think it's very difficult to personify and to, to identify with a number. And of course, we're never going to be able to think like a bat, as the philosophers say. <laughs> but the more we can make these creatures like humans, it seems like the more we can you know, empathize with them. You talk about the cute and cuddly and how the cute and cuddly get a lot more sympathy than the things that, that are not quite so cute and cuddly. And you also talk in the other book, Genuine Fakes, about how nature documentaries are sure. almost by necessity artificial to some degree. You're cherry picking a story and sometimes you're even fabricating elements of it. That was really disappointing when you- Oh, when I'm you, sorry. When you, uh, <laughs> you, you <laughs> I knew about the lemmings, the, the fake lemming story, but you know, when you told me that David Attenborough was sneaking a camera into a cave in a zoo in Germany and then inserting it back into the documentaries in the wild, that, that was disappointing. But I mean, I guess it's like you have to, if you want to tell the story, you have to have some- Actors do their thing, right? I think that this gets back to this question of trade-offs, right? That in order to tell stories, in order to have them have a narrative flow, we have characters and they do things and there's conflict and there's resolution. And how we parse those parts and how we put those parts together, I think is something that, that's under constant negotiation. And so in the instance of nature documentaries, it's been really interesting to talk to writers and directors and folks that are really heavily involved in creating nature documentaries and to talk about how to explain to audiences what's going on and what they're seeing and to offer that context so that people don't walk away feeling tricked or duped or, hey, wait a minute, 
that they worry about violating an audience's trust. And what's mm-hmm. interesting, I think, is sort of you take that and you you come over to the stories of endlings and you see, okay, we're telling, we're using endlings to tell stories about extinction writ large, but how do we actually put together and articulate the story of Benjamin the Thylacine? What sorts of literary traditions are we drawing from to be able to articulate this story? Do you think that we also draw similarities between the extinction of these species and the extinction of some of our cultural groups, right? There's probably not quite 150 a day, but there's quite a few languages that are disappearing and communities. And once they're gone, we, we want to kind of revive them. You tell the story of the Mayan Codex, where after the language of the Mayan or at least the hieroglyphic language of the Mayans were lost. We spent enormous amount of resources to try and kind of reverse engineer it and figure it out. So we didn't really appreciate it while we had it. But then after it's gone, we we invest all these resources to try to make sense of it. Do we need to be telling more of those stories? And would we need to not anthropomorphize, but maybe westernomorphize the stories of these people in order to generate sympathy for them? I spent a lot of time talking to anthropologists and evolutionary biologists. And of course, they love to go to visit the Hadza and the, these other groups. And the, the thing is, there, there's not that many of them. There's just a few. And, and it's almost like the, the scientists are like, please don't change. Don't use guns. Like, don't, don't use clothing and stuff like that. They're now trying to preserve them, whether these folks want to be preserved or not. Do we need a, a new type of storytelling to make sense of, of those groups? That's a really interesting question. And I think that trying to think of how to articulate it popped all of made all of these different ideas pop in my head i think that one of the things that i found with endlings is that the stories we tell about the last individuals of species do tend to slant very western and i think that that's a function of endling itself being a english word that we don't have another word in english or in a language other than english that connotes the last of its kind before extinction. And so I think that as a function of endling being an English word, I think that a lot of the stories end up having this kind of Western slant to it. For me, when I was when I was doing some of the interviews with colleagues who are Isi Zulu translators and speakers and storytellers, it was really powerful to me to see a new word for endling being created in Isi Zulu and to say, oh, this is how I would say it in Isi Zulu. And with that, it was like watching the inverse of extinction. It was like watching a new, it was like watching language speciate. And with that, it really piqued, piqued my interest and curiosity and hope that maybe we could get outside of, of a really Western-dominated way of storytelling, that it could open up other possibilities. And so I think to, to come back to your question, I think that historically, a lot of the storytelling has slanted very Western, but I think that in order to make sense of the Anthropocene and to make sense of sort of where we are, where we are, and how to think about that, I think that we're going to need non-Western stories and the power that those kind of non-Western approaches will, will offer. Your earliest work was in archaeology. A lot of your stuff is, is on fossils and human bones, human remnants. And so you have quite a few great stories to tell in those domains. With respect to fakes, I've always been fascinated by fakes because I've been fascinated by what people cherish and what seem to become popular. It tells us 
quite a bit about what people want to believe. You didn't talk about things like Ocean. <laughs> there are a lot of fake stories, and we have tons of them in contemporary America, right? Lots of phony stories, whether it's Bernie Madoff or whatever. But it tells us really what people want to believe. And so when you talk about the human skulls and the pre-human skulls and the stories of those ones that became famous, the ones that didn't become so famous, and the fake ones that became famous, what does that tell us sort of about what we want to believe about human origins and human history? Yeah, it's fun to see all of these different themes start to coalesce together. And I like how we're able to move from one topic to another here. I think in terms of origins or in terms of fossils and in terms of things like that, I think that we keep, I find that I keep coming back to the idea that the story really becomes part of the cultural and historical identity of the object. That certainly an object like Lucy, the famous Australopithecine skeleton, is going to be more scientific knowledge is going to be generated about Lucy the more scientific studies that are done. And over the decades, we learn more about how Lucy walked and scavenged and or gathered or or whatever. We learn about her diet, her mobility, all of these things. But what I find really fascinating is the 40 years since Lucy was discovered and how telling Lucy's story becomes part of Lucy's identity now. And I think that those are the moments that are going to really that are really going to solidify how people come to think about objects. But there were there's some fake ones, right? Like like Peking Man, right? And uh, oh, guys, so. well, so so Peking Man is and was an actual assemblage of fossils. It was lost during the Second World War, and the the fake, the sort of famous fake, is Piltdown Man. And Piltdown yeah, Man, and right? I yeah. love this story because it's the longest perpetrated hoax in the history of science. And somehow Human Origins gets to claim this rather dubious honor. And it's such a, I think it's such a fascinating story. People were really interested in the missing yep. link. That was what they were trying to find. The Lying Stone. I loved the story of the Lying Stones. Maybe you could tell us a bit about that because were the people who perpetrated this, I couldn't tell whether you thought of them as clever hoaxsters or, you know, <laughs> evil fraudsters. Like, tell us a little bit about that story. And I feel bad for the, the victim of the hoax, but not really that bad because he seemed to be sort of a obnoxious character and, and incredibly self-deluded. So the Lying Stones, um, you're talking, I believe, about Johann Beringer's Lying Stones. And this is sort of in very early days of paleontology and fossil collecting. And Beringer was a naturalist and medical doctor who was who was really into collecting fossils around the sort of Würzburg area in Germany and and was really interested in accumulating all sorts of curiosities to add to his cabinet of curiosities. By all accounts, he was a rather insufferable human being. And so I think after after enough enough years of listening to this, some of his colleagues thought, ah, this would be really funny. We could carve up some of these these stones and we'll We'll put them out for him to find, and it will be blatantly obvious that these things are fake. I had the opportunity of seeing two of them, two of the lying stones that are at Oxford, and they're just hilarious. I don't know any other word. I keep trying to find a more dignified word than hilarious, but they're just hilarious. They're just squiggles, and you see beams of sunshine and nothing that we would 
think of as a fossil today and nothing even that that people in the 18th century ought to have thought of as fossils either. But Barringer buys this whole thing, look, hook, line and sinker, and is just absolutely convinced that he has found this is it. This is the this is the load of fossils. So he creates a book. He commissions a monograph. He does all of these things. And his colleagues, who are the ones that have that have carved them and put them out for him to find, are beginning to get a little concerned, like this joke, this hoax has gotten out of hand. Maybe we thought he would just look silly. But now this this is just completely blown out of proportion. And eventually, as I explain in Genuine Fakes, it comes to a head. It's sorted out legally. Beringer sues his colleagues for basically making him look very foolish. And his colleagues slink off into history. And Beringer spends the rest of his career trying to buy back the books that he's authored in sort of the, oh, my goodness, please, history, don't let me don't make me look mm. foolish, which is, I think, an almost cruel, ironic twist to how we how we do remember Beringer today. But I love the story of of Beringer's lying stones, because as you point out, it's is it a hoax? Is it a fraud? How malicious is this? There are all of these human emotions in there. And to me, one of the most interesting twists to the story is seeing these fake fossils become real artifacts in museums. At Oxford, they have an accession number. They are a proper artifact. It's a fake fossil, but give it enough time and it has a legitimacy and a life history to this object all of its own. Now, what museum do you think it ought to, these ought to be in? In fossil museums or in 19th century history <laughs> museums? Because they, 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 they really tell us more about the 19th century and its, its illusions than it does tell us about fossil record. So there are a bunch of them that are sort of dispersed around in different museums. Um, there is a collection of them in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. And I kind of like them being in these natural history museums because I think that, first of all, no one is ever going to confuse them for an authentic fossil. But I love that it becomes this sort of material marker of how history of natural history unfolded. And so at that point, I think yeah. that it actually is an important physical component to that history. I always think of museums as their job is in part to instruct us on how we make sense of things, not just make sense for us, but expose the construction work that goes into our understanding. That also made me think of the, uh, you didn't spend a lot of time in the book, but there are these famous replicas of Greek statues that were, they made replicas of them in Roman times and people would find them in Roman ruins and think that they were Greek when in fact they were replicas. Obviously, I think in, in ancient Rome, the replicas were probably available at a much lower price than the originals, but now we treat the replicas as valuable works of art. But should we think of them as Greek works of art or should we think of them as Roman works of art? Which part of the museum should they be in? <laughs> I think I'll take a middle road to answer that question and to say, what if we treated them as their own thing? What if we treated them as these are objects and this is the history that's associated with them? And rather than try and put them into these categories, coming back to our, discuss our earlier discussion about categories, what if we just said these are these things and here's what we know about them and here's how their life history has unfolded? And I think that by focusing on the biography of objects like this, I think it affords us a really compact and concise way of, of being able to talk about these without getting caught up in, in categories. Now, I want to talk about the Spanish forger because <laughs> you could have written a whole book just on, on forgeries of works of art, 
obviously you picked this one because it covers all the bases. But you know what, what I love about the Spanish forger is that now people collect works by the Spanish forger and they'll attribute it to the Spanish forger. Now, once again, like where is it supposed to go in, in your collection? But you know what I loved about the story is it really did tell us, at least in, in, in the time period in which the Spanish forger paintings were being sold, it, it kind of just, it's this like fairy tale of you know how people thought of, about the time period, right? With the, the castles and no dragons or anything, but they could have had dragons in there. Sort of have pointy hats. Yeah. And it's, it's very like how people in early 20th century, turn of the 20th century, envisioned the Middle Ages. And so you have this artist that's creating these quote unquote medieval works. And it's fitting this, this niche precisely. It's a really sort of, I think, um, a really sort of genius understanding of what people want and then giving them mm -hmm. the story that they want. And again, one of my favorite parts about the Spanish forger story is, as you point out, people collect them. It's a genuine Spanish forger. And mm -hmm. I really love this idea that something that starts out as fake and in the early parts of its life could be made authentic and could be made real given enough time. And coming back to that question about categories, it's so easy to want to sort things into this. Is it fake or is it real? Mm -hmm. And to look at all of this space in between and to see what role does time play in how we think about the authenticity of objects. And so mm -hmm. for, for paintings like the Spanish forgers, I love following them along that historical continuum and saying, wait, now they're collectible. Now they're quote unquote real in a way that they weren't a hundred years ago. Why do we care so much about authenticity? I know this is, <laughs> this is maybe a more of a philosophical question, but I remember I had an architectural historian professor who was criticizing formalism by saying like, hey, you know, if, if you're a formalist, then a cigarette butt on the floor has to be seen as beautiful if you think a tile on the floor is beautiful, right? Of the same shape and size. And yet we obviously don't think the same way. I lived in a Frank Lloyd Wright house, which was built after his death. The design was made by Frank Lloyd Wright, and it was actually supposed to be in Southern California. And the estate of Frank Lloyd Wright sold the plans and it was built in a different place. So I would say I live in the Frank Lloyd Wright house, but not really. It's like, is it or isn't it? <laughs> Why would the value of the house depend on whether he was alive when it was built? Because even when he was alive, he might not have ever visited it or seen it. And that, that's so the Warhol story that, that you tell, I think is similar to that. I mean, what if Warhol authorized a hundred prints and those prints were 50 were manufactured while he was still alive. And then the, the printing presses kept going after his death. Why would the ones that were printed kind of after his death be worth less than the ones that were printed while he was still alive? It raised an interesting question. I was so curious to see Paul Stevenson, the artist who's continuing the, the Warhol project. It was so curious to see this moment that really forced that question of how, what are our expectations? And I think, again, mm -hmm. more than me wanting to be the person that's sorting it into buckets or into categories, what I found so curious was this forces this question. And I think the point that I came away with. And to be just to be clear, this is that he he, he had the the original the you know, negatives. Exactly. Right? He had the or negatives. The he worked with the person who had done authentication for Warhol. It was just like the only thing that had changed was Warhol was dead and decades had passed. And it was again mm -hmm. sort of playing with this this element of time. And what does this element of time do for how we think about authenticity and change? Mm -hmm. And I really loved how it forced this kind of question in a way that I think some of the other objects that I talk about in Genuine Fakes didn't necessarily do.
Well, I wonder if it, it, the same issue arises when you think about kind of reviving these extinct species. So I interviewed Beth Shapiro about this. And if you were to take the DNA of a mammoth and somehow revive it, would it be a mammoth or would it be something else? Obviously, the, the culture of the mammoth and the inherited knowledge of the mammoth would have to be reconstituted. You hear about these languages. There are some languages that are being revived. Is Hebrew really Hebrew or is this some, some completely different thing? And the other example of this that Beth was talking about is most bison out there have lots of cattle blood in them, right? Cattle DNA. Are they really, really bison or should we be thinking of them as a new yeah. hybrid species? It's such a good example. And I think that especially right now, the idea of de-extinction and woolly mammoths and thylacines and all of these sort of iconic animals are having their moment in the news right now. And I think that what I keep coming back to is the role that history and contingency plays. That as you point out, you grow your woolly mammoth. It's sort of that that's not its time. That's not its place. It's not its situation. And I think that doing things like that, it comes awfully close to to that genuine fake where it becomes sort of mammoth adjacent. I think that that mm -hmm. conveys what what I'm thinking. You talk about the the blue whales that that story was I, I started my my nose started to crinkle as I was reading this because you're describing all the stench associated with these things. And but you talk about how there's genuine skeletons and then there's fake skeletons. But even the genuine skeletons have bits and pieces of kind of fake skeleton, just because the, the bones are so unstable. You can imagine over time that the various bits and pieces of real bone would be get replaced by fake bone. I guess it's, I forget the name of the Greek allegory of the ship, right? Where every single plank on the ship is replaced over time. You know, is it, is it the same? At what point does something become fake? Here in Berkeley, we have a, a weird historical preservation law that says that if you are to make any modification to an historical building, you have to do it in a completely different style, which seems crazy, right? Like you'd think, all right, if I'm going to add a garage, you'd want to make the garage look like it was built in 1922. Like my house was built in 1922. So you'd want to make it look invisible. No, no, no. The historic preservation law says that you have to build it so that it's obvious that it was not built in 1922, right? So I think the law was drafted by historians and the historians are more interested. They're less interested in the aesthetics of the neighborhood and more interested in being able to see the, see the history. When you go to those museums and they have the vases or the sculptures where they add in bits to try to, they will sometimes do it in the same color. Sometimes they'll do it in a completely different color so that you can see what's added. And yet with painting, you don't do that. So when we look at the restoration of the Leonardo that sold for $450 million, I read the, the book about that a while back. They don't try to make the restoration look like restoration. They try to make it look like invisible. It's, it's interesting how they, with paintings, the restoration process is very different from with vases or sculptures. Yeah, it makes me wonder sort of how much the material and the medium drives sort of how mm. we how we respond to challenges to authenticity, that clearly we have different ways of and different expectations of that, where if you were to go to, say, a science museum and to see a T-Rex skeleton and to sort of say, OK, this is conveying knowledge about the past and this is this is telling me things that are true and I'm going to I'm going to take this away. I think it makes a lot of sense to have, OK, this is a replica and this is what we fill in and this is our best guess. And this oh, this is a cast of the actual fossil. 
it sort of reminds me of your your house example, right? Where the garage and the the veranda and the house are all different sort of episodes of construction. You go to see a restoration and you it would be hard to imagine it going over well with this bright yellow part right here in the middle. This is the restoration work, but we wanted to be really clear. And so to me, what I see is that there isn't a blanket statement that we can sort of apply to all material culture, but that it varies and our tolerance and expectations change over time and also vary depending on the medium. Yeah. And I was also wondering, you didn't get into copyright law at all, but, you know, I was thinking about the, those fossils that were assembled, right? Do you lose your copyright when you try to pretend like it's not a human creation? My understanding of the copyright law is that you get a copyright when you create something, regardless of the story you tell about it. Should the Spanish forger be able to, I guess it's been too, too long, but who owns <laughs> those? You talk about some of these fossils where they would just grab bits and pieces of yeah. fossil and, and slap them together. That seems like a, a work of art right there. The, the sort of Franken fossils. I laugh because I think at one iteration of Genuine Fakes, I think I had something like 18 or 19 chapters. And it was just like, oh, look at all of these strange and curious things. And, and oh, look at this. And I think my editor was just so horrified and just said, people are going to need a forklift <laughs> to move this book. Like we've, we've got to cut down some of these examples. And so, yeah, there were some examples where I thought, okay, this sort of peaks up on questions of copyright or patent or, or intellectual mm. property. I think that maybe a sequel or something to Genuine Fakes, I think that I would pick up those threads and say, what, how do we think about that? And what gets made on a third shift of product manufacture and things like that? One of the chapters in the book, Genuine Fakes, is about the caves in, in France and how the humans are destroying them when they go in there. Tourists, of course, are the biggest offenders because there's so many of them. But even, even the archaeologists and, and the historians are, are going to ultimately destroy these things. In a lot of cases, they built replicas. And I know I had a friend who worked for a company that designed a lot of these replicas. So King Tut's tomb, right? There's a replica and oh, caves is a replica. Okay. And, yeah. And, there's, yeah. And, and so the tourists are kind of shunted aside into the replicas. It seems like the replica doesn't need to be in Egypt, <laughs> you know, but we travel <laughs> all the way to Egypt to go to a replica. It, it seems bizarre. There are also plenty of people that will put real paintings in vaults and then put replicas on their walls. And it seems like... The subjective experience is as long as you can suspend your disbelief, either voluntarily or involuntarily, the experience is the same. Should we be thinking about building more replicas? I mean, if we think about Palmyra that was destroyed in in Syria, what if Palmyra was a replica and the real Palmyra was kept under lock and key somewhere where the bad guys couldn't blow it up? Do we lose something when we go into this replica? I mean, you talk about how they, they even made the temperature and the, mm-hmm. the smell, you know, yeah, yeah. As, as similar as possible to the original. How do we manufacture these genuine experiences? <laughs> and I think right there, even in the phrasing of your question is really, I think really sort of reveals a lot about what we expect and what we hope and what we want. One of the things that's really interesting, I think, is to look at, again, the surrounding context to the replica. And if a replica, particularly, for example, the uh, replica of Lascaux, the Paleolithic cave in France, or the replica of Chauvet Cave, to look at them as sort of, again, having their own, their own culture, their own life history, being their own thing, being adjacent to the original, never trying to pass itself off as that, but mm-hmm. still sort of claiming a space in culture and history, 
I think that there's a lot of value in that, particularly when we're trying to manage the trade-offs of heritage preservation and the sort of being able to maintain the original as an original. But I think, again, we sort of come back to the problem. I think the problems arise when it's being done through trickery or dishonesty or there's, there's mm -hmm. not a sort of full disclosure. Again, that feeling of, hey, wait a minute. I think that the replicas, certainly of large sites and and monuments like that, I think that they can they can become imbued with their own cultural cachet and power. Well, it's interesting that you know when we go to Las Vegas and visit the fake Eiffel Tower, that we at least most people don't think of it as you know. <laughs> hey, just like Paris. the original. <laughs> <laughs> well, it might be it's better. I mean, fewer fewer French people, right? No, but when we go to Disneyland. Right. Tokyo, we don't think that we're going to the fake Disney. Right. right. And I think right? that this comes back to this question of context. What is the context that we're experiencing and looking at an object in? And I think that a willingness to accept a context helps us make sense of that object or of that historical contingency. I think that the best case of how provenance or history impacts our subjective experience of things is, is the case of diamonds. A fake diamond and a real diamond you can't tell them apart. I mean, I guess you, maybe if you're a scientist and you have a fine enough magnifying glass, maybe you can potentially tell them <laughs> apart. I guess it's, it's carbon, it's carbon, it's carbon. But if you're going to buy an engagement ring, you want to get a Tiffany's, right? You want to get a, uh, a De Beers, right? You don't want to get the one that was made by, who was it? The General Electric. You don't want to get the General Electric engagement ring. I mean, it just doesn't sound very exciting. And I know that what De Beers has done, and I remember I met with the CEO of De Beers a couple of years back, is, is they now put a engraving in the, it's called a forever mark that gives you some story and you can go and look it up and, and you can see that it's almost like the number on the inside of the thoroughbred's <laughs> mouth where you yeah. can trace back and see, you know, the answer. It offers a, a provenance yeah. for this particular object, for sure. Yeah. And, but, but it's, it's, it's artificial scarcity in yeah. a way. We're going to say this is from the mine in South Africa. No blood diamonds, no, no yeah. factory, no, no, no fakeness. Somebody had to like slave underground to get this thing out, right? I found the example of laboratory-grown diamonds really, really interesting because to me, it really forced the question of how much do we care about the context that surrounds the object mm -hmm. to value the object the way we do. And it's funny that you bring up De Beers. De Beers actually has a uh, jewelry line of laboratory-grown diamonds. You can get your genuine De Beers laboratory-grown diamond. And several other companies are working their way into the laboratory-grown diamond market and are doing it to specifically call out as an answer to a really problematic history of mining and to say, look, this is more ethical. This is more green. This yeah. is more all of these things that we want to value. And the object at the end is sort of a manifestation of these alternative contexts, this alternative It's a different value. story. Yeah, it's a different story. And so I think that, that we keep coming back to which story do you want that's going to be reflected in the diamond that you that you pick. Yeah. There was a recent scandal here in San Francisco where there was a, a retailer that was caught selling genuine furs as fake furs. Oh, that's a, what a fantastic twist to the to the the story. Yeah. No, I'm like you know, that's horrible. I shouldn't say that's fantastic. But like from a storytelling perspective, <laughs> that's so curious to sort of see the other thing being the thing that's wanting to be valued. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. So that was why it struck me. It's like, wait, at what point did the the real furs become less valuable than the fake furs? So you hear stories about people getting blood tossed on them when they're wearing fake furs. And again, I mean, it raises an interesting philosophical question, which is if somebody is engaging in violence in, in video games, right? Is, is, is that okay now? All of a sudden you could be a racist in, in an imaginary world. Is that okay now? Or you can be a pedophile in a fake world. Obviously not. I have this question about meat. Like I'm very careful to find out the background story of the meat that I buy. And if I, if I don't know the background story, I generally just stay away from the meat if I go to a restaurant because I really want to know that it was produced in this humane way. Now that would suggest if you care about humaneness, you would love to eat like fake meat, right? Just the whole idea of fake meat is so disturbing to me, not from a health <laughs> perspective, but just from a, if you're creating vegetables to taste like meat, you know, you might as well just eat meat. If I'm going to eat vegetables, I'm going to eat vegetables. There's something about, I don't know, and it's purely aesthetic. There's no other reason why you would want to avoid fake meat other than it just seems there's something phony about it. There's the, both the meats that are made out of vegetables, right. but then there's this new like way in which you can grow meat from stem cells that where there's no no animal right. that dies in the process. I think the story of the the laboratory grown meat offers the is the most sort of in parallel with laboratory grown diamonds. And I think that I would mm -hmm. point to to it taking a while for laboratory grown diamonds to come into their own thing and to be this thing that's so sought out. And as you say, they're not for everyone, but certain people and people who value the kind of story that's associated with them are going to gravitate toward them. And I would venture a guess that give it enough time and meet adjacent things will find their, their story people, the people who want to have that, that story with the thing that they're consuming. Because you started your early education looking at fossils and bones and things, we have a view of the past, which is dominated by what remains behind. I remember hearing someone make the claim that the earliest form of human art was paintings. And I was like, you know, that seems to be like a survivorship bias, right? I mean, music and stories, they probably existed. We just don't have a record of them. Will future historians look back at the 21st century and say, wow, these people, they never really produced much in the way of content because all the content is ephemeral. So in your book, Postcards, there's this huge rise and then fall in the volume of postcards. And you liken postcards to like texts because you could send cards five times a day. Back in the day, you would have, particularly in large cities, the, the, the mailman would show up five times a day. And so you could, you could basically just have like text message string going on. Mm -hmm. And I think in Paris, they had the pneumatic, tu pneumatic tubes and stuff. Yeah. But large cities had the giant pneumatic tubes. They're fantastic. Yeah. Now we're all texting and all these texts are just going to disappear. They're just going to vanish. Of course, speech vanished, but texts are really more like speech than they are like letters in the sense that they're, they're just going to disappear and people don't write letters anymore. I know there are some folks that are lobbying for more spending on, I don't know, storage of virtual documentation, but who's going to pay to preserve all your texts? You're not going to leave in your will. Like <laughs> here's some money to, and even your kids probably don't, wouldn't even have your password, right? So when you found this box of postcards yeah. in your attic, right? From your grandparents, your grandkids aren't going to find a box of texts in the attic to reminisce about and find out more about what you were like when you were young. So is this going to pose a real problem for historians going forward? I think that what fascinated me about postcards was this is the largest artifact class that humankind has made and exchanged. 
And that to me was such a mind blowing thing that they're made, they're manufactured, they're sent, they're received, all of the infrastructure that's necessary to do this thing at this particular historical moment when postcards are really, are really popular. And one of the things that, one of the other things that was so fascinating about postcards was to learn, as you say, that about a survivorship bias, that we don't have a lot of postcards, that postcards were produced in the hundreds of billions. And we certainly don't, I don't know, maybe waiting in somebody's attic, but we, we certainly don't have postcards that are saved at the rate that they're produced. So I think stamp collection was a thing. I know when I was a kid, stamp collection was a thing and I had a big stamp collection and that people would hold on to these postcards for that reason. Now nobody collects stamps anymore. Kids don't do that. So they're, they're probably all getting tossed out. What I would say is the the historical parallel would be that there will be some other, there will be some other thing. And maybe we don't have that we don't know what exactly that is, but in 50 years, I'm sure that there will be some way that we excavate through, through media that we use today. And the other thing that I would throw out there is there are a lot of people who still send postcards and still collect stamps. And it's fascinating to see a really devoted sendership of postcards mm -hmm. as a protest against the fastness and the quickness of text messaging or tweeting or Instagram posting, that it becomes a very active choice. And so I think that that sort of over time, we'll see these choices in media and, and value continue to be negotiated. What I find interesting is that the rise of postcards was really a function of a new pricing regime, right? So it was about the postal services deciding that they were going to offer a special pricing. Now, I interviewed someone else about the history of news. And in the US, the Postal Service effectively subsidized the postage related to newspapers. And that's what really created this massive kind of newspaper business in the United States. And, and if, if the post office did not subsidize the shipping of newspapers, then we would not have, you know, obviously newspapers would be very limited in their circulation. And I remember the same thing when, I don't know, remember when the phone companies used to charge by the text, right? And then as soon as they dropped that, then, and WhatsApp and these other things came along, it radically changed how we communicated. What was the driver behind the kind of pricing changes that these postal services put in place, particularly like the international ones? Because that's when people really started shipping postcards back from their vacation spots. Yeah. I think that the what is a really important part of this story, too, is to look at the unfolding development of infrastructure for all parts of the postcard. That certainly, if, as you point out, there's this subsidy, at least in the United States, for postage and sort of the mail delivery that comes with that. But there's also, I think, a need for being able to print things in mass and being able to think about media existing at the scale that postcards do. And so that's a lot of that's a lot of institution and infrastructure to to have out in the world to support this. And then over the course of postcards, I mean, we start seeing postcards pop up in the mid 19th century and we start seeing things in international treaties starting to develop soon after that to be able to facilitate where does the post who pays the postage? Who, where does this go? How does this unfold? And so we keep coming back to these questions being asked and answered throughout history. And I think that that is one of the other big themes that I would say I see across all of my projects is just because the question has been asked and answered once doesn't mean that we won't come back and ask it again and get a different answer. And to me, mm -hmm. that is so fascinating to see how different historical moments 
interact with this problem or this question or this curiosity. And the books that we mentioned are only a small subset of your writing because you do write an awful lot for different publications. How do you balance your time between kind of the small projects and the, and the big projects? What makes you think something is worthy of book length treatment? How do you chunk <laughs> or, or clump your various inquisitorial projects, right? How do you decide how to turn them into bigger, small productions? Yeah, I find things, when something really piques my curiosity, I, I have this massive list. I have this massive, massive list of this is a really curious thing. How did I not know this before? And as I start to dig into it, some, some things I find lend themselves to book-length projects. Some things lend themselves to small books. Some things lend themselves to big books. Sometimes certain presses will have, hey, we're interested in this idea, but under X, Y, and Z auspice, and it, the project finds a way through that. And some projects are just, they're just shorter, that it's sort of, hey, this is curious, but if you read it for an entire book-length project, maybe maybe it would wear out its welcome. And so I try and find the balance between exploring all of the nuance and curiosity about something without, without wearing out the reader's welcome. And so different projects, I think, sort themselves that way. You now have an affiliation with academia and you know, you've been in and out of academia. And most of the people that I've interviewed on my podcast are academics, but I, I've interviewed some journalists as well. When you move back and forth between those two worlds, are there different approaches to thinking about storytelling and thinking about making sense of the world? Are they mutually exclusive ways of, of looking at the world? Should academics think of themselves more journalistically? Should journalists think of themselves more academically? Does it pay to have a foot in both camps, so to speak? <laughs> wow, that's the question of the hour, I think. For me personally, I have found it to be incredibly beneficial to have academic training and to have an affiliation and to to be able to access research and peer-reviewed journals and things like that, to be able to, to make sure that my work is grounded in terms of pursuing things. I mean, I think what you're saying about journalists, I mean, it seems like every journalist should have to go through some kind of training on how to not just fact check, mm -hmm. but sense check, yeah. right? And go and explore, go through Google Scholar and, you know, actually just look and see what the academic work is saying about whatever they're writing about. The flip side to that would be, though, in I never had to undergo any kind of journalistic training in the sort of how to how to deal with living sources. Certainly, I think that if I had pursued like oral history or things like that, that kind of training would have come. And so I think that the requirements that historians would want of journalists, I think journalists would want some some requirements of historians as well. And so I think that that for me, the having the foot in both worlds has been really fun to explore topics in venues that are the most suited to them. But I think that it's something that I have to very actively think about and make sure that that the methodology for the project matches is appropriate for the publication and the audience. Well, Lydia, thanks so much for joining me. I think you've got a wide ranging uh, intellect and curiosity. And so I, I always look forward to the next book. I look forward to getting surprised by the next one. Thank you. That's very kind. I appreciate the opportunity to chat. It's been wonderful. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.